Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And before the kids dis are dismissed, we'll have one more Bible verse from camp. Zane, did you have a good time at camp? Yeah. All right. Tell us the Bible verse you learned. Um, the Bible verse I learned um, was, so hearing, hearing, wait, faith comes from hearing and hearing comes from the Word of God, Romans ten seventeen. Very good. Good job. All right. You have a seat. And also, I meant to mention that here's a bunch of thank you cards from the teens and from the kids that they made for the church, thanking you for your generosity in sending them to camp. All right. So our scripture read this morning is Jaime Baez. Jaime, join me up here if you would, bud. And if you want to join us in Mark chapter 14. Same microphone. Does that work? All right, here you go, Jaime. And it'll be on the screen right back there. All right, kids, you can be dismissed now. So follow along as Jaime reads for us the word of God, Mark chapter 14, verse 27. And Jesus said to them, You all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into t temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See my betrayers at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jaime. I appreciate that. So has there ever been a time in your life where you said, I will never, and fill in the blank. I remember when, when cell phones were brand new. And I said, I'm never going to use one of those things. <laughs> I thought, only in case of an emergency would I ever need a cell phone. I mean, you could just pull over and use a pay phone or something like that. And of course, now we seem like we can't live without them. Another I will never that I've said that I've kept so far is I will never wear cowboy boots. That's just me. I nothing against those you wear them. You guys look better than I do. It's just not my thing. But have you ever said something, I will never, and then you did? We all have. In fact, some of them are probably more embarrassing than we want to talk about. Peter does this. Peter says, oh, Lord, I will never forsake you. I'll never fall away from you. And, of course, he does. And we know the story. Most of us do. But we're going to look at it in detail. And we're going to not only focus on Peter's denial, but we're going to look at Jesus' perseverance and how Jesus plunges through this with great determination. And Jesus said to them, he says, you will all fall away. 
How many disciples does he have? Twelve. How many fell away? Twelve. He went twelve for twelve. If Jesus had predicted this and eleven out of twelve or ten out of twelve fell away and but one or two didn't, Jesus would be wrong. But as Jesus always is, he's right. He's 100% right. And he predicts that all of them will fall away. And then he says, the reason why you're all going to fall away is because not just I'm predicting this, but the word of God is. He says, for it is written. And he's quoting an Old Testament passage that we'll read here in just a second. But the prophecy, the Lord Jehovah, God the Father says, I will strike the shepherd. Who's responsible for Jesus' death? Is it Judas? Is it the Romans? Is it the Sanhedrin and their guards? Is it Satan? Is it Pontius Pilate or Herod? They all played a role and they're all personally responsible. But ultimately, God the Father was in total control and he's the one that offered up his son to be killed. It it wasn't some accident Some liberal philosophers want to say, well, Jesus had a messianic complex and then towards the end of his ministry, the wheels all just fell off and next thing you know, he was thrust into this position and he was murdered and that's not the way he wanted it to end. It's exactly the way he wanted it to end. He was in total control that he would be crucified on the Passover at the hour he predicted he would be crucified. Everything happened the way Jesus had foreordained before the foundations of the world. All of this went according to his plan. But everybody involved in his crucifixion is personally responsible. But it just shows that they were just pawns in this massive chess game that God the Father was orchestrating. And he says, I will strike the shepherd. The shepherd is referring to Jesus, obviously. And Jesus is a great shepherd. He's not a hireling. He lays down his life for the sheep, which what most shepherds would not do. He would protect them. He would be like his foreshadow David, who fought off a bear, who killed a lion, who did all these things to lay down his life for the sheep. And he says, and the sheep will be scattered. This speaks to the necessity of leadership. People need leaders. Um, at camp this week, we had a problem we had to deal with. And so we, they said, all the adults go down there with the kids and kind of clean up this mess down. We all showed up. And so obviously nobody was in charge and I'm um, standing around waiting, and you could see that people were starting to do things without knowing what everybody else was doing, and you could tell it was going to go in all different directions, and finally I just whistled like I do, and I said, hey, if none of the other adults mind, I'm going to kind of set out a plan if this is what we're going to do, unless someone else wants to do it. No, no, go for it, go for it. So I said, okay, let's stack all this over here, and put all these in this can over here, and boom, we got it done. But there's situations where you have to step up, because people are like sheep. They need a leader. We don't need an overbearing leader who's domineering and a dictator like my way or the highway. We don't need leaders that are so passive that it's like, oh, whatever you want to do. And mom and dad, you guys are called to be the leaders in your household. You can't be over-domineering and you can't be too passive. You need to step up and, and give some direction. And when people don't have direction, what do sheep do? They scatter. We've seen that happen to so many churches where the pastor, you know, falls away from the scene, whether through death or something else, and the church just seems to collapse, which shows that too much of leadership was on him and not on a plurality of eldership or leadership. So the, the leadership needs balance on all levels in the home and in the church. The prophecy that Jesus was quoting is from Zechariah 13, 7. 
This was written 520 years before this happened. Again, just take the, United, the age of the United States and just about double it. We're talking about a long time. And of course the prophecy says specifically, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man whom stands next to me. Declare the Lord of hosts, Jehovah, the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And of course Jesus quoted word for word. And 520 years later, it happens just the way that Zechariah prophesied. Do you realize that there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus' first coming? 300. And all of them specifically came true to the letter. This wasn't some vague things like Nostradamus. These were very specific prophecies about where Jesus would be born, where he would grow up, what town, how his family would move to Egypt, come back to Nazareth. I mean, all these details, not to mention that he would be born of a virgin, and then how he would be crucified, which was a method of capital punishment that had not even been invented yet. I mean, incredible detail proving that the word of God is true like no other book on the planet. And watch what Jesus says here. He says, but after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. He just blows through the idea of being resurrected as if it's a foregone conclusion, which it was. (laughs) He didn't say, well, if I rise again, I want to meet you somewhere. I don't know where I'm going to be when I rise again. No, he knew specifically, he said, as if it's a matter of fact, I'm going to rise from the dead. And after that happens, I'm going to meet you in Galilee which is an incredible prophecy, a prediction, and then a promise. He told them, you're all going to fall away, but it's not going to be permanent because I'm going to come meet you, and I'm going to meet you in Galilee where it all started. We're going to go right back to the beginning, and you guys are going to get a second chance, which God is really good at, amen? God gives us hundreds of second chances. and he, So he prophesies not only that they'll fall, but they'll be restored because there'll be a great reunion in Galilee. Peter said to him, well, even they they all fall away. You you, you hear people use the word they that way. Those people, you know, well, that's what they do, you know. And it's a negative thing. It shows incredible arrogance. Peter, yeah, Peter did some pretty cool things while he was a disciple. He walked on water for a little bit, you know. He, he He gave the great doctrinal statement that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus, like, you know, good for you. Flesh didn't show that to you, but the Father showed that to you. The Spirit revealed it to you. And upon that statement, that rock, I will build my church. So Peter did some pretty cool things, but he also did some pretty stupid things. So why he thinks he's superior to everybody else, I really don't know. I mean, James and John and all those were also an inner circle. I mean, John was the one that was called closest to Jesus, the disciple whom Jesus loved, his best friend, his BFF. He was the one that was tight with him. So why Peter thought, oh, everybody else will, but I won't. And pride, just pride. I mean, he could have said, none of us will. That'd be good. Or, hey, I understand none of us are perfect, but we really do love you, Jesus. But he took himself like this and put everybody else down. You know, have you ever noticed that conceit is one of those illnesses that makes everybody sick but the person who has it? <laughs> and that, this is what Peter's suffering from. And the word, he says, and they all... I mean, he throws them all under the bus. He doesn't say, well, me and John and James, we won't. Maybe the other nine will. No, he's like, I'm better than all 11 of them. And he was only right about one, you know. And he even committed the same pretty much betrayal that Judas did. He just had a repentance where Judas didn't. But the word fall away is scandalizo 
and it sounds just like it does in English, scandal, you guys will be scandalized. How many political figures have we seen whose lives have been scandalized and you don't hear about them anymore? Or you know, Hollywood people. Y'all remember Pee Wee Herman? <laughs> he was a real popular kid show, and then he got caught doing something really stupid, and his career was over. You know, it was a scandal, even though he didn't do anything near as bad as what everybody's doing today, and now they're heroes for it. But anyway, uh, scandalized. He says, but, but I will not. I will not. He didn't say, I'll really try hardest not to. I, I really don't want to. He's like, no, I'm not. It's not happening. And you just, it just bleeds with arrogance. Proverbs 16, we always quote it, pride goes before a fall. We quote it wrong, but pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride is what's inside of you that thinks you're better than others. The haughty spirit is the way you carry yourself around others. Always talking down to people, always bragging about how your stuff is so much better than their stuff, and I'm up here and you're down here. You know, someone tells a story and you one-up it and you have to tell a better story and you're just doing... And some of us have perfected the, the humble brag where we kind of subtly sneak details in without having to be full-blown bragging about it, but it's all the same thing. We think we're somebody when the truth is we're nobody. We're, we're, without Jesus, we really are nothing but a... a a bag of flesh and chemicals that really is just going to rot in the ground just in the same place we started. But with Jesus, we we have something to be excited about, but all the boasting goes about him and, and our pride goes towards him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, therefore, let anyone who thinks, notice it's not no, it's your weird perception that you stand. Did you think, oh, here I am on solid ground. There's no way I'm falling. There's no way I'll betray Jesus. There's no way that any of that's going to happen to me. It might happen to those other people, but I think I'm standing. The warning is, hey, you take heed because you're going to fall. You, when you think you just stand on your own and you're not standing upon the rock, the true rock of Jesus Christ, you're, you're just an accident waiting to happen. And he says in verse 13, he says, no temptation has overtaken you that is the common to man. You're not going through anything different anybody else isn't going through. But here's the thing. But God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted upon your ability. You see, it it boils down to this. Your ability to stand is not based on your faithfulness to God, but his faithfulness to you. If you don't fall, it's because Jesus didn't let you fall. And in, in one of the other gospels, Jesus says, when Peter says this, he says, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you, and the word you there is in the plural. This is where Texan is biblical. It's y'all. Satan has desired to sift y'all like wheat, but I have prayed for you. The reason that Peter and the others didn't permanently fall, he let them fall away temporarily, but the reason they didn't permanently fall is because Jesus prayed for them. You see, Jesus is not only our Savior, but today he is our intermediary. He is our intercessor. Did you know Jesus still prays for his people today? That he is the advocate that goes before the throne speaking on our behalf. He's like our, our good lawyer and counselor, our wonderful counselor that constantly speaks to the Father on your behalf, no matter what you're going through. And that's what we should take confidence in. Your confidence can't be in your flesh, in your degrees, in your resume, in what's in your 401k. Your confidence is in that you have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous that he stands for you, and he is faithful to you, and he will not let you go. Like 1 Timothy says, he that has begun a good work in you will perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is doing the work on your behalf. 
So Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night, I'm telling you right now, before the rooster crows twice. Now we've studied before how the night was divided into four parts, from six to nine, from nine to midnight, midnight to three, and three to six. The 12-hour night when it was dark, you know, give or take different seasons, obviously, but the second two were called the rooster crow times, the first crow and the second crow. So right around 3 a.m., if you live near a rooster, you probably hear them start then. And then between 3 and 6, they go off several more times, especially when the sun comes up. But they start at 3, and then they really pick it up in around 6. So there's the first crow and the second crow. He says, you're going to start denying me between midnight and 3, and then you're going to finish denying me between 3 and 6 in the morning. You're going to deny me, in those 6 hours, you're going to deny me 3 times. So basically, like once every two hours, you're going to deny me. I don't know if it went down exactly like that, but you get the gist of it. But Peter says emphatically, this rough-on-the-edges fisherman is, is arguing with Jesus. He's like, no, Jesus, no, there is no way. I am not falling. Those other jerks may fall, but this guy is not falling. I'm telling you, I am loyal to you. He is emphatic. He is determined about it. And, and who just got telling them all this? Jesus did, as if he's ever been wrong. <laughs> but all of a sudden, Peter all of a sudden thinks he's right. And we do that too, don't we? We get ourselves in a really tough situation. We're like, I know it's wrong, but the end justifies to me. And I know it. I'm not supposed to lie, but I'm going to lie this time because it's all going to work on the end. And God's like, don't do this. Don't do this. And we're like, but I have to this time. I know it's wrong, but blah, blah, blah. And we think all of a sudden we're the exception. Jesus is wrong this one in a million times. In all of the universal history, he's wrong now in your case. As if the world revolves around Gary. We're guilty of that just like Peter. He says, and then he goes a step farther. He says, even if I must die with you, if they crucify me right alongside of you, I'll do it. I will not deny you. And then the other disciples, they're not immune to the pride. They're like, yeah, us too, us too. We'll even die with you, Jesus. And of course, we know that there was utter failure there. Our knee-jerk reaction to criticism is to defend. When tell, someone tells us that we're about to do something wrong or we're doing something wrong, we start, what do we start doing? We backpedal, we make excuses. Well, but you don't understand, blah, 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 blah. And we just defend, 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 instead of saying, hmm, you might be right. Maybe you're wrong, maybe you're right. Let me stop and think about that. But our, our knee-jerk reflex reaction is to defend ourselves. And what we need to do is whenever we receive criticism, whenever we receive a warning, we need to consider the source. And let's say someone who has no right criticizing us you know, because they're a whole lot worse than us. But you know, e even a pig is, finds an acorn, blind pig finds an acorn once in a while, right? And a broken clock's right twice a day. Even someone who seems to have no credibility, might, maybe there is a, a grain of truth involved in it. Good advice is not to dismiss your critics. When someone criticizes, even if you think they have no credibility, listen to it carefully. And even if there's 2% truth in there, that's better. And you could be 2% better because of it. But in this, in this story, consider the source. Jesus is the one who said, you're going to die me three times. Shouldn't that make Peter stop and say, wait a minute. He walked on water. He fed the 5,000. He calmed the storm. You know, he raised Lazarus from the dead. Hmm. Maybe he's right. And there are going to be times in your life that you're reading something in Scripture or I'm teaching something from Scripture and it's going to rub you the wrong way. 
And you're going to want to rationalize and defend and think, well, yeah, but maybe that doesn't apply to me or that's just Old Testament or whatever. You're going to try to find a way. When you need to realize, stop and say, wait a minute. Jesus is speaking to me and conviction doesn't always feel good and it's not all about feeling good. Maybe I need to make some changes. See, people want a, a, a therapeutic deism that it's a God that just makes me feel good. It's all about my feelings. It's all about my feelings. And I believe these parts of the Bible, and I like to highlight these parts of the Bible, but I don't like to highlight these parts of the Bible because those make me feel bad. It's all about feelings. We need to forget that. We need to focus on truth. And if the truth tells us we're wrong, and we look in the mirror and we see, oh, wow, that's not right. Instead of just walking away, we need to make changes. And changes make us feel uncomfortable. But discomfort is is what makes progress. You think Jesus was comfortable as he's working his way to the cross? No, but the greatest work in all of history was accomplished when someone was dealing with the most pain. Don't run from pain. Don't shelter your kids from pain. You see your kids struggling to put something back together and you want to jump in and fix it. No, you let them do it. You should have seen these third and fourth graders trying to roll up sleeping bags. They're like, what? <laughs> Where did the straps go? I rolled up the wrong way. And I wanted to jump in and do it for them. I'm like, no, no, start over, unroll it, roll it tight. No, you're on the wrong end. The straps are that way. If you roll up the straps on this end, the straps are going to be on the inside. You need to work out towards that. And you need to fold better. And if you start crooked, it's going to end up worse. And you just let this, and they're all like, oh, I can't do it. I can't do it. You should have seen them and like, I did it. Look, Brother Gary, I did it. Don't protect your kids from pain. Don't always bail them out. Life is not going to be handed to them. You know, do, you, do you understand what our government is doing to our, our kids? Here's a check. <laughs> Here's a check. You didn't do any work this year? Here's a check. Oh, there's a pandemic? Everybody have a check. Hey, yeah, we don't care. Trillions of dollars. Just pass it all out. We don't. Oh, you're unemployed? You don't want to work at Taco Bell fast, ball, fast food? Here's, here's a check. I'm telling you. that They walk into the bathroom and they go, the soap comes out. They walk over to the sink. The water comes out. They walk over to the paper towel. The paper towel, towel. They walk over to the government. Check comes out. Hey, this is easy. Man, I can Netflix and chill for another month. Look at this. This is easy. Don't protect your kids from that. You, know, you need to consider the source when the word of God is convicting you and Jesus is speaking and let him make changes, difficult changes in your life, uncomfortable changes in your life. Second Chronicles 20, 12. Um, gives a beautiful prophecy here. He, oh, they're in, they're in, um, Jehoshaphat's in a really tough situation. They're facing an enemy that they cannot, def- they cannot win against. And then he cries out to God, Oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them, our enemies? For we are what? Powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. You know that's where exactly where God wants you. Every day you should wake up, Jesus, I am powerless. I am a miserable failure without you. And I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. That's, that's the humility we wish that Peter had had. That's the humility we wish all the 11 had had. That, Lord, we are powerless. We probably will fall. We don't know what to do. But our eyes are on you, Jesus. That, that's, the, that's the spirit that needs to invade our lives every single moment of every day. So let me ask you this tough question. In what area of your life are you, like Peter, overconfident and proud? What area of your life? You may think, I got this. 
I don't even need to pray about this. I could do this with my eyes closed. It may be a certain part of your job. It may be the way that you parent. You may be the way that you are a spouse. Whatever it may be, you need to take heed lest you fall. And you need to realize that you, you need to go back and pray like this. Lord, I am powerless. Even in your strongest area. I don't care if you, whatever you have degrees in and you think you just know this, you could teach this to others. Ultimately, in comparison to God, in comparison to what's going on in the world, you're powerless. You don't know always what to do and you need to keep your eyes on Christ. So what would it take for you to deny Christ? What would it take for you to deny Christ? Let's say at your job, maybe your job is on the line. They're like, hey, we noticed that, you know, lunchtime you're praying over your food and you're talking to people about God. You can't do that if you want to work here. That just needs to stop. Would you back off like Peter and act like you don't know him? Or would you say, hey, bring it. <laughs> Put a pink slip in my box. I don't care. What would it take for you to deny Christ? Would it be a temptation? Would it be peer pressure? And that doesn't, doesn't apply to teens, right? Would it be struggles at the job? Would it be a financial compromise? What would it take for you to deny Christ? So did Peter learn his lesson about pride from this experience? And the good answer is yes. He did learn from this. In fact, he later would write two epistles, first and second Peter, and he says this. Think about Peter in the garden. I will not deny you. Then he's humbled. And then years later, he writes this. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Did Peter receive grace after he denied the Lord? You know, Jesus met him on the beach, cooked him breakfast, and said, Peter, do you love me? And how many times did he ask that question? Three times. How many times did Peter deny the Lord? Three times. God showed grace to him because now he was humbled. And so Peter says, you know what you need to do? You need to do what I didn't do in the garden. You need to humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he may exalt you. And Jesus did exalt Peter later as a great leader in the church. So then they, the disciples, went to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane means the, 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 um, the olive press. The olive press. Two big produce items in, this, in Israel at this time and still today. Olives and grapes. Olives and grapes. You have olive presses and you have wine presses. You squish both of them. And here the olive press is going to become a wine press. Because Jesus is the one that's going to be crushed. And his blood will flush out from this, from this wine place here. But this is Jesus' place to pray. We all need a place like that. And he said to the disciples, hey, you sit here while I pray. And then he says that he took with him Peter, James, and John, his inner circle. And he asked them to come a little bit farther and pray in another area. So he's like, hey, you guys sit here. I'm going to pray. And I'm going to ask some guys to come with me to pray. So they walk a little bit farther to pray. Now, think about this. If, I, if I'm recalling this correctly, I don't know of any time in Jesus' whole ministry where he did anything for himself except for one time. He asked the woman at the well if she would give him water. And I think that was just to open up a conversation, so I don't think ultimately it was selfish. But this is the one time that Jesus would generally say, hey guys, I need you. For, for three and a half years, I've been there for you. And now I need you to be here for me. And they fail. The one time 
the one time that Jesus says, I really need someone to be here with me. And they let him down. I, I feel like that sometimes. Do you feel like that? Where God needs me? <laughs> I mean, really, ultimately, we know that God needs nothing, right? But he wants a relationship with me, but I'm too busy and I, I fail him. And here's the one time that Jesus says, hey, I need somebody. I'm going through a difficult time. I am stressed out like I've never been stressed out before. There's a medical condition where your body gets under such trauma that capillaries in your brain around your forehead start breaking. You actually will literally sweat drops of blood in your sweat out from around your brow. And this is a medical condition that Jesus actually experienced. Very few people experience this. That's how deeply distressed he was. And so he says, hey, I need my, I need my discipleship group. I need my group of four. Please be with me right now. I need you more than I ever needed anyone before. And this is why we plug life groups all the time. This is what life groups are about. When life gets tough, you need to be able to sit on the couch with someone and say, hey, here's what I'm going through. And have your brothers and sisters put your hands on your shoulders and pray for you. And, and, and even if they say nothing on the way of advice, just to be there to listen. Jesus wasn't asking Peter and James and John for advice. Hey, I'm about to be crucified. What do you guys think I should do? He said, just would you just be there for me? And that's what it means to do life together. That's why we push life groups so hard that they are so important because we can't go through life without those things. And he says he began to be greatly distressed. And this Greek word here is really tough to, to translate into English because it means it takes several English words to make, to make this one word make sense. And it, two of the words that st- stand out really amongst five are astonished and horrified. Now you think about that. We, we, we've made it very clear, but let me just repeat. Jesus is 100% God, amen? But when he took on human flesh, he left some of his privileges behind. So he didn't always exercise omniscience. He didn't always exercise omnipotence. He had all those. He just set them aside. And so he did get tired because he wanted to do the full human experience. And so here he is astonished. He's horrified. Now, there is one thing in common with both those words, and that's surprise. There's something that Jesus is now seeing that he did not see that's like, oh my gosh, this is horrifying. This is astonishing. And I believe, and this is just my take on this now, so you study this for yourself and find out what you find out to be true. Not talking about you have your own truth. (laughs) We've covered that. But you study the scripture for yourself. But I believe that the full wrath of God that he was about to experience, he had not fully seen until now. And now he is getting a glimpse of what this drinking this cup metaphorically means. And it's horrifying to him. It is terrifying to him. And it is so terrifying that he is now so stressed out and traumatized, he's sweating grape drops of blood. The human Jesus is now about to give up but he doesn't. He presses on. And you know, it's sad. Again, I hate to keep knocking on pictures, but he didn't look anything like this. He doesn't have perfect perm and makeup on and his clothes are nice and white. And I, I almost wanted to show you the video of this, but the Passion of the Christ spells it out pretty good. He's wiped out. He's, he's sweating profusely. He's filthy. He's dirty. He's agonizing. And I don't think he's perfect posture, praying like this with his hair, beautiful hair flowing. I think he's in the dirt on his face, if not in the fetal position before God. This is, 
This is a horrifying scene for Jesus, and he's pressing through all of it. Can you think of a time in your life when you were on the floor in the fetal position crying? Asking God to give you your life back? Or keep someone alive? Jesus is going through all that times a billion right now. And again, it's not a pretty picture like it's often one Da Vinci wants to paint. He's really suffering even before he gets to the cross. He is suffering for you and for me. And he said to his three best friends, my soul is really sorrowful. I'm to the point where I feel like I could die right now. I know my death is hours ahead, but I feel like I could die right now. This is stressing me out so much. Would you please, please just remain here and watch. Just stay awake and watch with me and be with me right now. I need you. And he went a little farther. So he's left the the nine behind. He takes this three and he says, I need you to stay and watch and I'm going to go a little bit farther. And then he fell on the ground. He didn't with perfect posture kneel like that. He collapsed on the ground under the weight of the sin of the world on his shoulders. It's already on him now. He collapsed on the ground and he does what we should all do when we're in difficult situations. He prayed. He prayed. What is your first response to difficult situations? To call your mom, call your best friend, start complaining, divert to a video game or an app on your phone? Or when difficult times come, is your first response to fall to the ground and say, God, I need you. I need you. It says, and if it were possible, he asked that this hour, you see, the scripture refers to it over and over again as the hour. And it doesn't mean a literal 60 minutes. It talks about that moment in time. He asks that if it's possible, some way, somehow, that this would pass from him. So Jesus is facing death. And you want to compare this to how other believers face death. And there's something, if you think about this, and Tim Keller fleshes this out really well. You think about other people throughout history who've been martyrs. And they're singing songs. They're encouraging others. And Stephen, even when he's being stoned, he looks up into heaven and the heavens open up and Jesus is standing at the right hand. And they were like glorious things when these people are being burned at the stake or stoned to death or crucified upside down. It seems like they're all being brave and heroic. And here's the Son of God saying, please, is there any way out of this? Is he less courageous than them? No, here's the difference. What all the martyrs had Peter, Stephen, um, all the ones you read about in the Fox Book of Martyrs, what they all had was the Holy Spirit of God residing in them and a special anointing of the Holy Spirit when they're being persecuted to where they are filled with peace that surpasses understanding because the Holy Spirit is on them. And God is with them at that time more than he's ever been with them before. And Jesus' experience is the exact opposite. The Father leaves him. All of his friends leave them. He doesn't have any of that. At this point in time, and especially on the cross, he is the loneliest man in the universe. His source of strength that the martyrs had from the Holy Spirit of God and the presence of the Father was there with them. The Father turns his back. The time when you need people to be with you, and they've all, all have left, and even the Heavenly Father... For Stephen, the heavens open up, and there, here we are, we're cheering you on, Stephen. The heavens close on Jesus. 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Cries out, he says, Abba, Father. And we know it. What does Abba mean? Daddy. And let me even say something I learned from Tim Keller also. It's even one step more infantile than that. Daddy is what three and four-year-olds say. Infants say dada. And this isn't, this is Abba, Abba. This is like the very first words a child says. And it shows total dependence on the father. And Jesus is crying out, Daddy, Dada, Father, all things are possible for you. He's not questioning God's character. He's, he's praying that in that way. He says all things are possible. He's saying, I'm not wanting to do just scrap the whole plan. But if there's some plan B that does the same thing and forgives the world, the, the world's sins the same way, is there some plan B, something like that? I'm not one to ditch it. I'll go through something similar. But right now I'm seeing all of this on me. And I don't know if I can humanly handle this. As again, in the, Jesus is 100% human, 100% God. And, and really this kind of throws back to Abraham. He's pulling up the knife to kill Isaac. And I'm sure he's thinking... He's been up all night praying about this. And what does God do? He provides a plan B. There's a ram with its horn stuck in a thicket. And so, yeah, Isaac got off. Jesus doesn't. There is no ram in the thicket for Jesus. Jesus will be the lamb who will be sacrificed. And he says, if it's possible, remove this cup from me. Now, a cup was symbolic of death, a very common way that people would be executed. They could give, they'd be given a choice. You can die this way, you can be hung, whatever, or you can drink this cup of poison. And that's why many people back in those day, days choose, chose to die. And so Jesus is talking about not only the cup of death, but also the cup of why he would die. There would be God's wrath poured out on him. Psalm 75, 7 talks about this cup. He says, but it is God who executes judgment. So this is a cup of taking the judgment of every person who has ever lived and every person who would ever live, which if you, if you believe in a young earth uh, creationist, which I do, there's approximately 36 billion people who have ever lived from Adam to today. Okay, 8 billion, 7.9 billion today, 8 billion before the flood and then about 20 billion in between in history. So about 36, 32 to 36 billion people have judged. All their sins, all of God's wrath, all of God's judgment is now going to be poured out on Christ. And this is what is horrifying him. This is what is terrifying him. This is what's making him sweat great, great drops of blood. And verse 8 says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup of foaming wine. This is the strong stuff. Okay, This is not going to be easy to drink down. And it's well mixed, and he pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. The dregs were the, the sediment at the bottom that was exceptionally bitter. And Jesus is not going to drink most of the cup. He's going to drink all of it, even the bitter residue at the bottom of the cup. He said, so remove this cup from me if it's possible. But then he says what should be our prayer all day, every day. Yet not what I will but what you will. That's the way we need to live. God, there, I would like to do this, this, and this, but hey, it's not about what I want. What do you want me to do, Lord? What would you want me to do? And let me just tell you this, and the kids, if you don't get anything else out of today, please get this. God always gives his best to those who leave the choice up to him. You may want to marry so-and-so because she's cute or he's good looking, 
But if you leave the choice up to God, someone way better will, will be in your life. You say, I want to do this career, but let me tell you something, but God, not my will, but yours be done. God's going to give you something way better and better for you and better for his glory, for your good and for his glory. So then, let's see. And he came and he found them, what? <laughs> Sleeping. The one time in his whole life that he asked, hey, I need something for me this time. And they let him down. And he said to Peter, now who's asleep? All of them. But who gets nailed? Peter does. Why? Because he's the one that said, oh, I'm not going to fall. And he's like, hey, Peter, remember that whole talk about how you're not going to fall? Why are you asleep? And this you is in the singular. Why are you asleep? And Peter could have said, well, hey, they're all asleep too. Man, don't play that card. Everybody else is doing it. You get caught cheating in school. Well, everybody else was cheating, Mom. Not everybody else knows Jesus. Not everybody else has parents who love them and expect a whole lot more from them than these other parents may expect. You can't point the blame on everybody else. It doesn't matter if everybody else is failing in life. God's expecting you to be faithful. He says, Simon, why are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? And that word watch means to be alert, to be awake. And this was a theme throughout scripture that he said over and over again. So let me, here's an interesting thing. I've said this at the beginning and I've said several times. Who is Mark's primary source as Mark is writing his gospel? Peter is. Now he had other sources, but his primary source that he's interviewing and Peter's telling these stories. Yeah, we did this, we did this. Okay, great, great. And then what else? Okay, great. And Mark is writing this book that's taken him years to write because he goes from rough draft to rough draft to fine tuning it, to inserting the chiasms, to making everything perfect. And the Holy Spirit's guiding the whole process. And he's checking with Peter about all these details. Peter, and so this is all, Mark is often called Peter's gospel. And yet, it's Mark's gospel that reveals Peter's failures more than any other. Man, I believe Peter learned his lesson. Peter's like, yep, and then I denied him three times. Oh yeah, and then there was that time that I was walking on water and I got my eyes off Jesus and I sunk. And there was that other time that I argued with Jesus and there was another time I did this. And Peter's saying, yep, I failed, I failed, I failed, I failed. Transparency at its best, right? Which is another evidence that the Bible's true. Because people who make up legends and myths, they paint themselves as heroes who do no wrong. The apostles said, hey, we're a bunch of jerks, <laughs> and we totally blew it, but Jesus bailed us out. There's a church in Memphis, Tennessee, and they have a, a mission statement kind of like we do. Ours is, worship God passionately, love people genuinely, start a revolution. Pretty cool, right? This is this church's, I wish I could remember, the, I know the, the pastor is Dane Ortland. I wish I could remember the name of the church. But anyway, their mission statement, their purpose statement is, I am a complete idiot, my life looks, my future looks bright, and anyone can get on this deal. <laughs> I love that. I'm a complete idiot. My future is bright, and anyone can get on this deal. And I think that's what the disciples would all say. We were complete idiots, but our future is still bright, and anybody can get in on this deal. And it just shows the, the genuine transparency. And let me tell you something. Whether you're a pastor, or an elder, or a deacon, or a, a nursery leader, or a teacher, whatever you do, just be real. Just be transparent. Let people see all your failures, your weaknesses. You don't have to put on a facade. A lot of us have been there and done that. We've been to churches where you have to walk in and look perfect. You know, you can't talk about your failures. No, let's just lay all the cards on the table and let the chips fall where they may. 
to use a, a weak poker analogy there. <laughs> so he asked them to watch and pray. Two things, watch and pray. I think as Christians, we have a hard time balancing these two. There's a lot of Christians who are really into watching. Oh, have you seen the news? Have you seen what's happening? I think this prophecy is being fulfilled. I think Jesus is coming and they're watching and watching. Oh, there's the Antichrist. Oh, they're, no, they're there and they're watching. But they're not really spending much time praying. And there's other Christians that they pray and they're prayer warriors, but they have no clue what's going on in the world. And I think Jesus calls us to balance the two. We need to be alert about our times and our seasons that we're living in, but we need to always respond in prayer to all of them. And those two things working together keep us from falling into temptation. You see, he, he tells them all over and over again to watch and pray. But what's their temptation? How did they give in? Did Peter all of a sudden get up and run out and get drunk? Did Peter all of a sudden get out and, and go commit adultery? Did Peter all of a sudden go up and steal? What was Peter, where did Peter fall into temptation? He did nothing. He slept. That's the, that's the temptation that I think most Christians face today is just to fall asleep at the wheel. Just do nothing. Don't share your neighbor, don't share Christ with your neighbors. Don't dare open up about the gospel at work. Don't really have a proactive position in your kid's life. Let them find their own truth. Just don't do anything. Just be passive. When Jesus is calling us to do a whole lot more. He wants us to be very uh, proactive, to watch and to pray. But you know what? Jesus could have really reamed them out. <laughs> but he says, hey, you know, I know you were trying your spirit is willing. It's just your flesh is weak and you're tired. I understand. Even here, when Jesus needed them, his most, needed them the most, and he could have really went off on them and totally justified. I mean, he went off in the temple, so we know he has that ability, right? And that wasn't sin, so don't think I'm trying to put something in there. It's not. He could have tipped tables here in the garden if there were any, but he's so merciful. He says, hey, I know your spirit was willing. I know you're tired. Is basically to put my Milbourne paraphrase on it. He says in verse 39, again he went away and he prayed, saying the same words. Now some people look at this and say, wait, he keeps praying the same prayer. Isn't that vain repetition? The Bible does not condemn repetition. It condemns vain repetition. So you could pray the Lord's Prayer over and over again. We, talk, we tend to want to knock our Catholic friends and say, well, you keep saying Hail Mary, full of grace, Blessed are thou among women, blah, blah, blah. Well, there is a human nature that if you keep saying the same thing over and over again, it's really, really hard to mean it. But Jesus prays this three times, not 100 times, not 32 times. He prays it three times, and there's nothing wrong with that as long as each time you mean it. If you don't mean it, it's, it's all in vain. It's a vain repetition. It's an empty repetition. So repeating prayers is not the problem. It's whether we really mean it or not. In verse 40, he says, and again... He comes and he finds them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. Again, I can see Peter giving an excuse for, hey, Mark, please put in that our eyes were very heavy. I mean, it wasn't like we just took a nap on purpose. We, we really were exhausted. But anyway, the details included, and it was true. But they didn't even know how to answer him. He's like, couldn't you stay awake for even one hour? Couldn't you just pray with me? And you ever been caught red-handed to where you're like, there's nothing to say, but just hang your head? That's, that's where the disciples are at right now. And he came to them, how often now? A third time. A third time. You know what's interesting is all throughout the Bible, you see things in threes, right? Starting with Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We see our earth as land, sea, and air. 
We see that, you know, space, time, and dimension. We see threes everywhere, all throughout the universe. You see them all throughout the Bible. And Mark is no exception. You see lots of threes in the Gospel of Mark. First, how many disciples did he ask to go pray with him? Three, Peter, James, and John. How many times does he ask that the cup would be removed? Three times. How many times did the disciples fall asleep? Three times. How many times would Peter deny him? Three times. You see the pattern. I think we could, if we look further, we could even find even more throughout the Gospels. But he says, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? He's like, that's okay. It's enough. It's enough. And I don't think Jesus is frustrated or whatever. I mean, I'm sure there's deep disappointment that the one time in his life he needed his friends there, they would not stay awake for him. But I think he's just resolved. It's enough. What we see here in the Garden of Gethsemane is really a, a story about two gardens. We can compare this to the original garden, the Garden of Eden, and the Garden of Gethsemane because the world is changing. The world changed dramatically in Eden. The fall took place and death passed upon how many? All men. The whole world became cursed because of the major cataclysmic events that happened in Eden. And now major um, profound events are going to happen here in the Garden of Gethsemane. First of all, so let's compare the two. In each garden, there was a test of obedience, each with huge consequences. In the Garden of Eden, the test of obedience was, will you eat of the fruit or will you obey? In the Garden of Gethsemane is, will you take the easy way out or will you partake in the cross and obey? Abraham was told, I'm sorry, Abraham. Adam was told, if you obey me, you will live. But you compare that with what Jesus was told. Jesus was told, if you obey God, you will die. Do you realize Jesus is the only human being in all the history of the world that was told, if you obey me, you'll die. I, I, you won't be rewarded. You won't be blessed. You, will be, you obey me, you'll be cursed. Because he was taking our curse upon himself. Adam is tempted and he selfishly fails. Jesus is tempted and he lovingly, because of his love for you and me, he perseveres and does not give in to temptation. Adam decided, not your will, but mine be done. And Jesus prayed, not mine, but your will be done. Adam through Adam, the curse of death passed upon all mankind. And through Jesus Christ, the blessing of eternal life is available to all mankind, to all who believe in him. And here's an interesting detail that Mark throws in. Mark 14, 51, it says, And a young man, it's anonymous here. Mark knows names. There's deliberate intention when Mark gives a name and doesn't give a name. We've talked about that before. I believe, this is just my theory, and I'm not alone. I got this from other theologians that the young man here is himself. That Mark is claiming anonymity just like John does with the whole, the disciple whom Jesus loved. I believe Mark is not trying to draw any attention to himself here. This isn't anything to brag about, it's nothing. But I think he's also just trying to leave his name himself out of it. I think also, like we t mentioned last week, when, when the disciples went to find an upper room to have the Passover and they said they're looking for a man carrying what? A jar of water. I believe that also was Mark. There's many times where I think Mark kind of slips these details in, but that's just my theory. But whatever, whoever it was, some young man was following Jesus, 
But he had nothing on but a linen cloth about his body. Why he already has his cloak off, I don't know. But it's basically his undergarment, what people would sleep in, is he's wearing that about his body. And they grabbed him. The soldiers who came to seize Jesus grabbed him too. But he, like Joseph, he takes off that robe and he runs off naked. And it's interesting that Mark throws that detail here in this garden. And I think it's a comparison to the Garden of Eden. In Eden, Adam and Eve flee from God naked and ashamed. And here this young man in Gethsemane flees away from Jesus naked and ashamed. He's ashamed of Jesus. He doesn't want to be arrested with him. He'd rather betray him and run from him just like Adam and Eve ran from God and hid themselves when they were naked and ashamed. So he came to them the third time. He says, are you still sleeping and you're taking your rest? This was the theme. Stay awake, stay awake, stay awake. Jesus Back in chapter 13, he says, keep awake. And he says in verse 34, stay awake. Verse 35, stay awake. Verse 37, stay awake. He warned him several times before the garden, meeting, please stay awake. And then when he gets to the garden, he asks him to stay awake. But again, how many times have all of us been warned <laughs> over and over again, and we run the stoplight anyway, and we wonder why the accidents happen? And he says, it is enough. He says, the hour has come. He's been talking about this hour since the beginning of his ministry. Do you remember when he's at his first big event? He's at the wedding of Cana, and he's just attending the wedding. He's not performing the wedding. He's not involved in the wedding. But this wedding will be the scene of his first miracle. And I believe, like Tim Keller and others believe, that this whole wedding thing that Jesus is attending is like making his mind fast forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb when he will have a wedding. Because, you know, he is, right now he's 30-something years old. He knows that the Father's will for him not to be married, not to have kids. So his eyes are set forward a couple thousand years when he will take his bride. And as he's watching this wedding play out, and he sees the husband and the wife being united, and he's thinking, man, someday my church will be my bride. But in order to have that happen, I'm going to have to die. My hour is coming. And so... I'm sure at times he's celebrating, at times he's like weighing heavy thinking about that hour that is to come. And then they, what happens? What disaster happens at this wedding? They run out of wine, you know. Don't be nervous, Baptist, okay? But they ran out of wine. The party's not going to continue with it. And this is going to be an incredible embarrassment on the father of the bride and the groom both. And so Mary, you know, probably being friends and related to them, comes to them and says, hey, Jesus, we're in a bad situation Now's the time. Now's the time. And he says, woman, what, do you have, what does this have to do with me? How is this my problem? My hour has not come. And he told him, his hour, hour, the hour for him to die and to suffer for the sins of the world has not come. It's not time to reveal all this. And of course, if you watch The Chosen, she said, if not now, when? You know, but that's a whole other story. But he's, after that, he continued to talk about his hour. Here, he says it in John chapter 2, verse 4. Then he talks about in John chapter 7, he talks about his hour had not yet come. And then in chapter 13, verse 1, it says, Now when Jesus was at the feast of the Passover, which would remind him about that, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world. So you know, now it, it's coming, but he continually talked about this. And he says, and here in our passage, here in Mark, he says, The hour has come. He told Mary it has not yet come. Then he told the disciples the hour is coming. And here he said now it has come for the Son of Man to be betrayed. 
And again, son of man is the, is the phrase that Daniel used over and over again about when God would come and be king and reign. So, and where is he going to be betrayed? Into the hands of sinners. How ironic, because just a few years earlier, the Pharisees told Jesus he's the friend of prostitutes and sinners. Jesus spent his whole ministry hanging out with sinners, and now he's put into the hands of the real sinners. You, call, you thought all the tax collectors and prostitutes were the sinners. Here's the real sinners. We're all sinners, yes, but by relative standards, these are the real sinners. These are the ones who hate me, and these are the ones. But then it says he will, he will rise. He, again, Jesus never, he's always teaching about his death, burial, and resurrection. So Jesus goes from trembling and being so horrified that while he's sweating great drops of blood, to now he's saying, let's rise, let's go. Isn't that interesting? He went from collapsed on the ground to like, let's go, let's meet it head on. In fact, other gospel says he went out to meet them, says, hey, who are you looking for? And they're like, looking for Jesus and Nazareth. said, here I am, bring it. You know, he went, so think about that. He's collapsed on the ground. Father, please, if there's any way, take this from me. To now he's like, let's go, let's roll. And so it's interesting, what changed here? What changed here is that he spent time with his father. He spent hours and hours and hours in prayer. And Jesus, the man, was transformed to, from terrified and horrified to now determined and strong. What a contrast, all because he spent time with the Father. Is there a lesson here for us? Absolutely there is. What challenges are you facing that calls for you, you put your own name in here, to spend time with your Heavenly Father? I think, and I'm not throwing stones because I say it too, but I think one of the most pathetic statements we ever utter as Christians is, I didn't have time to read or pray. <laughs> you got time to watch the ball game. You got time to watch Netflix. You got time to watch Maury Povich. You got time to watch Oprah. You got time to play games on your phone. And when we say, I don't have time, and again, I'm not throwing stones. I'm guilty too. We, we, all, we make time for what we want to make time for. And so let me ask you, what challenge are you facing that calls for you to spend time with your father? And then, what is your plan then to make it happen? It's one thing to go to church and say, yeah, Brother Gary's right. We need to spend more time with the Father. I really need to get my quiet time going. I've been really neglecting my Bible reading, my prayer time. But now what's your plan to change it? Because unless you have a plan, unless you, unless you have a plan to stop this failure, you're going to fail and you're going to plan. I totally butchered that statement. Anyway, what, let me ask you here. Let's get to the root of the problem. What idol is keeping you from time with the Father. If you keep saying, I, yeah, I know I need to spend more time in the Bible and prayer, but you don't, I guarantee you there is something else you're worshiping that's more important than Jesus. Your idol may be sleep. Your idol may be entertainment. Your idol may be your job. You think your job just can't survive without you. I guarantee you when you die, they're not going to go bankrupt, unless it's your company. Okay, And even then, someone else is going to replace that product. So what, what is your idol that's keeping you from spending time with the Father. Jesus, after spending time with the Father, said, okay, guys, let's get up. Let's go. Let us be going. See my betrayers at hand. He sees them coming. He goes out to meet them. He doesn't hide behind a tree. He doesn't say, hey, let's go the other way. He goes out and meets this problem head on. 
Isaiah 50 verse 5 prophesies this also. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. This is talking about the words of the Messiah. And look at this. He says, I gave my back to those who strike. You want to beat me? Here, here's my back. You want to rip my beard out? Here's my cheeks. To those who pull out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and from the spitting. He could have ran from all this, but he didn't. He plunged headfirst into all of this. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. We talked about this before. Like, this is like the strongest rock that you're determined. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. Ultimately, I'm the one that's going to be, rise as the victor. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. This is the prophecy of what Jesus would do with the disciples. Let's stand up together. Who's my adversary? Judas? Let him come near. Bring it, Judas. Bring, it. Bring your 200 soldiers with your clubs and your spears. You know, this reminds me of a story that I think Americans have forgotten. But 9-11 happened, and how many planes went down? Remember, two went into the Twin Towers. One hit the Pentagon. And one was on their way, what many believe was to the White House. But this guy and several others decide to stop him. And now all of a sudden the name is blanking out. What's his name, somebody? Oh, man. I'm so sorry. I've read this all week long and now all of a sudden I'm blank. All right. Anyway. Um, so he gets on his cell phone, calls a 911 operator. And her name is Tiffany Jackson. And he's telling her what's happening. She doesn't tell them that all the other planes have gone down because she doesn't want to discourage them. He thinks this is the only plane that's hijacked. But he knows that, that their plans are not to land it, but to crash it. And she kind of lets him, confirms that that part is true. So they've devised a plan that they're going to rush the cockpit and they're going to take these guys on. Because these guys, they had box knives. That's all they had was sharp razor blades. So they thought they can take them. And so, because they couldn't get guns and stuff through security, but they were able to get these box knives through. Anyway, so he's on the phone with her and praying, and he asked her if she would pray with him and recite the Lord's Prayer with him. She was a believer. He was a believer. God gave him strength. And then he said, tell my family. And he told her about his wife, how he has two boys, and how she's expecting another child. Tell them I love them. And somebody says, are we ready? And he says, yeah, we're ready. Let's roll. And he drops the phone. And they ran, and they, they, they were able to over-muscle the, the guys flying the plane and run that plane into the ground to their own death. But by doing that, they saved the lives of dozens, if not hundreds, if they had hit their target. This is the kind of determination to lay down your life for other people. And as heroic as this is, this is even close to what Jesus went through for you and for me. Hebrews 12.2 says, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You think about the suffering in the garden to the suffering of each mock trial where he's beaten repeatedly, whipped and tormented and put a crown of thorns and then ultimately crucified with nails in his hands and in his feet, spit upon, mocked, naked and ashamed. Why would anybody go through all that? For us. For us. So next time you're feeling discouraged, 
Remind yourself what Jesus did for you. That he thought you were worth it. The next time your self-esteem is suffering, you think nobody cares about you, remember the one who only matters does, and he proved it on the cross. No matter how hard life may get, just realize that because he died for you and he rose again, if your faith is in him, you will live forever in paradise with him, the one who loves you more than ever. No matter what you're going through, look to the cross because Jesus had you in, on his mind as he went through all of this. My question for you this morning is, do you know him? And I realize I'm speaking to a place where probably 99% of you do. And let that be your motivation. Let the gospel motivate you to be the better husband, to be the better parent, to be the best employee, to be the neighbor who cares, who blesses his neighbor, to be the one every day remind yourself, if Jesus could do all that for me, this is the least I can do to serve him, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. I would like for everybody to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want to speak to the one person in the room, maybe two, or who knows, Lord knows, that really may not know Jesus. You've heard these facts. You can repeat it back. You can quote the Bible verses, Jesus died for me. But is your full hope and trust in his finished work on the cross? Have you made the decision to give your life to him? Have you stepped across that line and said, Lord, I give everything to you because you gave everything for me? Has it traveled from your brain to your heart? Or is it just information? Why not make it personal today? You could pray a prayer, something like this, and the prayer doesn't save you, but communicate with the Lord. Father, I know I'm a sinner. The guilt haunts me every day for the things I've done and, and bring great shame to me. I thank you that Jesus died for all of it, not just part of it or most of it, but he died for all of it, past, present, and even the future sins I haven't even committed yet. Lord, I claim now the blood of Christ as my only hope of salvation, and I give everything to you all my life. I make you the Lord of my life. I thank you for saving my soul, and I look forward to spending eternity with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I hope you made that decision today. If you, if you did, please contact me. You can call me or text me anytime. And I'd love to talk to you about your next steps as a new believer. Um, I don't have Amanda or Ashley. I have Tori, though. There we go. Good. All right. One of these ladies is always good to help me. So Tori, come up here and help me with question and answer time. If you're watching from home, uh, you can send in a question even now. And, uh, and if you're in here, you can send it as well. If for some reason you think it's not coming through, feel free just to raise your hand. We can do it the old-fashioned way as well. Um, there we go. I think that's the first question. If that was one time Jesus needed his disciples, but they failed him, what would have happened had they all fervently and faithfully prayed with Jesus in the garden? Different or same outcome? Same outcome, because Jesus plan was to go to the cross it just he would have been comforted more in the process you know if you go through chemotherapy and you come out the other end a survivor it'd be nice to go through the process with friends but if you do it alone the same result as your survivor it just would have been nice to go through it with friends and i think that that's what jesus is wanting to go through it with him but they but he knew that that wasn't going to happen because he's the one in new scripture said you'll all fall away so but even then, he kept warning them and asking them to watch. I think that's so they'd learn the lesson later because then many of the apostles would write in their epistles about watch and pray. Great question. 
Speaking of the wedding, if his hour had not come yet, why did he go ahead and turn the water into wine? Yeah, great question there too. Um, I don't know. I know, like, again, we've talked about how Jesus set aside his omniscience. So he's just praying every day, Father, whenever you want me to do the first miracle, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready. But to reveal his hour, like what his plans were, that's when the miracle happened there at the wedding. So I don't really know. That, I, that's a question that I don't know all the details of. I know Jesus, uh, I don't know if he would have done the miracle if Mary hadn't asked, but God used Mary to ask him, and so he did. And Mary says these great words, whatever he asks you, do it. She tells the servants of the wedding, whatever he asks you, do it. And that's great advice for all of us today. Whatever Jesus asks us, we should do. But there's, that'd be a great question to ask Jesus in heaven because I, I wish I had a better answer for you than that. that it? Okay, any other questions? All right, great. Let's, um, let's stand. Okay, cool. Oh, thank you. I'm going to read that. Todd, Todd Beamer. I don't know how I forgot that. Todd Beamer was the guy on the 9-11 and said, let's roll, let's roll. All right, let's read this um, scripture together as a blessing over God's people. Numbers chapter 6, verse 24, together. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.